I want to read just a brief passage of Scripture, and then we'll go to prayer. This passage is found in Exodus chapter 15. 15th chapter of Exodus, five verses beginning with verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink of the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Merah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. Let's just pray. Gracious God, Jehovah God, gracious and abundant and merciful, we plead with thee in the name of Jesus this morning that you would meet with us here, that you would manifest thyself in a very mighty way, in a very clear way to every heart that's found in this room today. And so bless us, Father, as we meet together. May your name be exalted. May the name of our blessed Jesus be proclaimed without any kind of compromise. May your word be held forth, Father, in purity. And may in all things your name be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to speak a little bit about the context in which this account is given. You'll recall with me that God's people had been in Egypt for about 215 years. And they were led out of Egypt. And the Bible tells us that as they came out of Egypt, miraculous things occurred. God was with them and God was leading them and they were following Him. They were being disciples, if you will, this morning of God Jehovah. And so the Bible says that about the first day they came to a place called Succoth. And the second night, they came to another place. And the third night, they finally came to Pi-Hyros. And this was the place where they found themselves entrapped, there by the Red Sea in front of them. And I suppose the mountains on each side, and the Egyptian army overcoming them from behind. There they cried the Lord, and the Lord brought a mighty deliverance to them, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, which the Bible says their enemies are saying to do were drowned. And so after this mighty deliverance and that song of victory that came forth from Moses in the forefront, the forepart of this 15th chapter of Exodus, the Bible says that they went another three days, another three days in the wilderness, and then we approach 
verse 22 of Exodus chapter 15. So three days they had traveled. They came to the Red Sea. God delivered them in a very mighty way. Three more days into the wilderness ashore. And here we have the account in Exodus 15, verses 23 through 26. Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, the Lord who heals. I suppose my first encounter with Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Rapha was on January the 2nd, and I'm not sure what year it was, but about 10 or 15 years ago. I had been asked by an older minister in our congregation to accompany him. He was invited out to Deer Creek, Indiana. And he was going to be asked to preach on New Year's Day, which happened to be on a Saturday. And he wanted someone to accompany him to preach on Sunday, January the 2nd. And so we said we would go. And a few days before we left to go, I came down with the flu. And I don't very often get sick, but on occasion I do. And when I do, it just seems like I'm really sick. And that was one of those occasions. And I had intestinal disorder, and it was, it was a very difficult time. And so I just prayed that God would heal me somehow so that we might take our journey. And it didn't happen. And so, Saturday morning came early in the morning, and I had loaded up with a couple of large containers of Gatorade, and, and we left. And I was sick. I was sick that morning before we went. And we stopped halfway out there, and I was sick again. And we got there to the meeting house early, and I was sick again. And I walked into the meeting house that morning on Saturday morning, and I knew I was sick. And I knew that, that it was going to be a miserable experience to try to, to just survive through that service. And I didn't think I could do it. And somehow God enabled by His grace me to just get up and exercise a little bit in opening the service and, and closing the service. And I, and I made it through the service. And as soon as dismissal occurred, I beat it out of the meeting house to the rest of the room area and I was sick again. We went someplace for dinner, and I couldn't eat the dinner. I was sick at the table. And in the afternoon, a couple of times, I was sick. And in the evening, we were invited away again. It was just a miserable day. I was sick there at that place. And I, I was embarrassed about it, but that's the way it was. I was sick. On Sunday morning, I got up early, and about 3 o'clock, I began to pray. And I knew it was my responsibility. I had made a commitment. It was my responsibility to try to give a message that morning. And I just thought it couldn't possibly happen. And so I was praying, and I was reading, and I was studying, and, and all of a sudden, in a moment of time, about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, on January the 2nd, 10 or 15 years ago, at a particular moment in time, I was healed, and I knew I was healed, and I never felt anything like it before, and I was praising God. And I say this morning that we serve Jehovah Rapha. We serve the God who heals. And I believe that when the Bible says that Jehovah Rapha heals us, it's speaking about physical healing. I don't believe it only speaks about that. 
But I believe it's talking about physical healing. And so I want to hold that before us this morning. I know that we have all had it emphasized to us, perhaps throughout our years, that, that, that Jesus Christ has come to heal those who are sick with sin. And I'm not going to take that away. I don't believe you need to have that emphasized to you this morning. But I do believe that it might be good for us, perhaps, to have it emphasized that God wants to heal our sicknesses. That is exactly what is told us here in this 15th chapter of the Exodus. Now, we'll not get away from the ultimate desire of God, the final desire for Him to heal our sins. And I'm going to come back to that before this service is finished. But I want to, uh, to spend a, a great deal of this service just talking about the fact that God wants to heal our sicknesses, our maladies, our illnesses, our infirmities, if you will, whatever you want to label them, God is interested in healing them. Well, let's just look at this message. Let's just think about the physical healing that the Lord wants to bring into our lives. I just, I just beg of you, just don't discount. Don't discount the reality that God wants to heal you in a physical sense. Don't discount that. The miracles of the Old Testament are many. And many of those miracles have to do with a physical healing. The miracles of the New Testament also are many. And if you look at the miracles of Jesus, 32, 34, however many of them you want to pick out, many, many of those miracles of Jesus have to do with physical healing. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how the Bible says in the fifth chapter of James, that if any is sick among you, let him call for the elders and let him be anointed. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. It speaks about those who are sick. Sick. I looked that word up. That Greek word that's translated sick there in James 5. And it was as I thought it was, that in most cases, in the New Testament Scriptures, when sick, when that Greek word that's translated as sick there in James chapter 5 is used, it's speaking about diseases and maladies. Now, some exceptions, of course, exist, especially in the book of Romans and in the epistles to the Corinthian church. But with those exceptions, in almost every case in the New Testament, when the word sick is used, it's talking about physical sickness or physical illness. Jehovah Rapha is emphasized for us about 60 to 70 times in the Bible. For some reason, this truth is just expounded to us over and over again, and too many times we just overlook the truth and the reality that God wants to heal our physical sicknesses. Well, I want to say this before we get on to the end of the body of the message. I want to say this, and that is that, that I personally believe that sin is not primarily a disease. Rather, sin is primarily 
a crime against the holy God that we serve. And so that's the way I'm approaching this message this morning. Jehovah Rapha. The outline of the message. We're just going to work through this, this passage, these five verses in Exodus chapter 15. We're going to look at the desires of the people, the discontent of the weary, the disillusions of the discouraged, the distilling of the waters, and the demands of the healer. And then we're going to come to the conclusion and try to wrap this, this message up in a way that, that best glorifies God. And so let's think first about the desires of the people. As has already been stated, the first night out of Egypt, they came to a place called Succoth. And the second night, they came to Etham. And the third night, they came to Pyahiroth. And there it was that the Red Sea was opened, the, opened up and parted before them on the following morning. And you can read these accounts in the 12th chapter of Exodus, the 13th chapter of Exodus, and the 14th chapter of Exodus, then that glorious deliverance that God accomplished, and you read the song of Moses in the fourth part of this 15th chapter of Exodus. And so they went three days, three days' journey. And the first day, with the flush of victory and the destruction of the armies of Egypt behind them, the first day they went, and they had no water, but I believe they were rejoicing in the delivering power of God, and they hardly thought about the fact that they had no water to drink. And perhaps the second day, as they continued their journey into the wilderness of Shur, perhaps the second day, they didn't give a lot of thought to the fact they didn't have any water to drink. But I believe that the reality began to press upon them that they hadn't had a drink for a long time. It hadn't been but just a couple of days ago that there was water everywhere. They were baptized in the cloud. And the waters were all around them as the parting of the Red Sea occurred. And they walked through those waters on dry ground. But here they were, second day, past the parting of the Red Sea. And they're trekked through the bottom of the sea. And they had no water and they were thirsty. And I, began to, I believe they began to wonder what God was going to do with them. The third day, in the wilderness of Shur, something altogether different happened. And the Bible says that they were weary. And the Bible says that in their weariness, and, and we're going to be reading some things into this, but I think you understand the human personality enough to believe that this is very likely the case. They began to be discouraged or to be discontented with the way that God had led them. And so let's just think about the desires of the people. They wanted water. It had been three days they hadn't had a drink. And they wanted water now. They wanted water quick. And so up ahead of them, suddenly, they saw a pool. And they came rushing to the water. And it's the waters of Merah. And the Bible says the waters were bitter. They had a desire, and their desire was that they would drink. Man must have water. All of us must have water. You've got water in front of you, and I've got a little bit of water here, and, and we've all got to have water, and we like to have water. Our throats get dry. We become parched. Our lips become parched. 
And so they wanted water. You know, man can't live very long under ordinary circumstances without water. You can survive without food. And you're going to be encouraged to embrace that discipline this week to just reduce the food intake and to sacrifice a little bit and allow God to work with you in your state of discipline as you, as you go without food from time to time. Fasting is a reality that ought to be embraced by all of God's children. I believe that. Water. You can't go long without water. I've heard of men who have fasted for up to a hundred days and lived. But you can't go very many days without water. And it depends a lot upon the environment in which you're in. Desert environment, like the children of Israel were in, would be very, very difficult, very difficult, to even survive three days without the miraculous intervention and empowering work of God taking place in the lives of those individuals. Well, I want to say this before we move on from the desires of the people. This desire was a reality. But what I want to say is that these individuals, and, and understand this truth, these individuals were already redeemed. They were already redeemed. The Bible says it something like this. He saved them from them that hated them, from him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of him, and I forget the exact quotation, but that oppressed them. I'll say it that way. And so they had already been redeemed from Egypt. They had been bought out of Egypt. The blood had been applied to the doorposts and to the lintel. And they had come under that blood and they had come out of Egypt. They had been, the Bible says, redeemed. Even in this 15th chapter, you'll find that expression given. How God redeemed the people out of Egypt. But, having been redeemed, there was a greater work that God desired to do in those people's lives. Indeed, there was. I'll say it this way. The Bible says that, and I'm, I'm using this in the sense that I'm knowledgeable that I'm addressing disciples of the Lord Jesus. I bless you this morning that you are disciples of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it this way in the 130. 103rd Psalm, verse 3. And I'm going to use the pronoun he. That verse actually begins with who. He forgiveth all thine iniquities and healeth all thy diseases. Just think about, just think about that verse. He forgiveth all thine iniquities and healeth all thy diseases. Forgiveness of iniquity precedes the healing of disease. First, they were redeemed. Second, God had a greater work that He wanted to accomplish in their lives. Those people were thirsty, and I believe they were crying. And their cries might have been the same words that we find elsewhere in Scripture, Give me to drink! Give me to drink! You know, those words were uttered by our Master once, too. Altogether a different tone, I believe. But He gave, Jesus gave, expression to words like this, 
And you'll find those words recorded in the fourth chapter of John. When Jesus came with His disciples to the city of Sychar, and He sat there at the well outside the city of Sychar, and the Bible says that Jesus was wearied with His journey. He was thirsty. A woman from the city came out to draw water. Jesus said to her like this, I believe in tones that were pleading, Give me to drink. Same, same expression, perhaps, as the people in the wilderness. Altogether different tone. The woman came out. When Jesus began to teach her and to instruct her, and she began to comprehend His teachings and what He had to provide for her, to offer for her, she said like this. She said, Give me this water. Perhaps a different tone than Jesus used. But she saw her need. She saw her plight. And she wanted that water. Now, she wasn't demanding like the children of Israel were in the wilderness. But she too wanted water to drink. And so we have the desires of the people. Let's think about the discontent of the weary. The discontent of the weary. These people were desperate. Their desperation turned to discontent. And in their discontent, they became discouraged by the plight of their circumstances. That can happen to us. Jehovah Rapha wants to heal us. And He wants us to not get into the cycle of discontentment and discouragement. This, this state of, of being like the, like the children of Israel were in the wilderness. I remember another time in my life. I'd been asked to go out to Mexico, Indiana, to the love feast there one year, and said we'd go, and we were looking forward to it, we were making plans to go. And just a few days, just a couple of days before we left, all of a sudden I came down with a backache that that bent me over and I couldn't stand up. I couldn't hardly walk. Now, I didn't know what I was going to do. <clears throat> Go out and for two days sit on wood benches and try to stand up and exercise in the preaching of the gospel. And, and how was that going to happen? I couldn't even get in a vehicle and drive without a great deal of pain. And so our second daughter worked at a chiropractor's office and, and I called her and and she said, well, you need to go see Dr. Hummel. And, and so I said, well, I'd never been to him before, and, and so how do I do this? She said, I'll call him and, and make the arrangements, and so she did. And, and I went to see him, and, and he worked on my back, and he, and he helped me out. And when I speak about Jehovah Rapha, I want you to understand this morning that I'm not against using methods that have been proven through time to be effective and to appear to be the hand of God working through the intelligence that He's granted to men and through the physical healing capabilities that He's given to men who have knowledge about these sorts of things. Lots of, lots of caution can be given about various kinds of healing methods. But, but I went to a chiropractor that day and, and he worked on me and he, and he helped me out some. And he said, he said, I want you to stop, I explained to him what was awaiting me the next day and, and the day following, and he said, 
When you leave on Saturday morning, you said, I want you to drive an hour. And then you stop and you walk around the vehicle several times. And then you drive another hour and do the same thing. And so he just encouraged me to do that. And I followed his counsel. And so we got there and, and my back was hurting. It was really hurting. And I went into the meeting house that morning. And my back was sore. And I knew it was sore. And it was difficult to sit there and, and to stop from squirming. And so I sat there and, and I began to become absorbed by the message that was given. And, and the meeting was dismissed. And we made our way down a very narrow flight of stairs, a steep flight of narrow stairs to the basement. And about halfway down those stairs, I suddenly realized my back pain was gone. I didn't have it. And I knew again that Jehovah Rapha lives. Jehovah Rapha is. And I want to just emphasize that point over and over this morning. Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha. Well, Jehovah Rapha not only healed sickness in my own experience, but He also healed infirmity. You see, a backache is not caused by some sort of bacterial infection or some sort of virus. It's just an infirmity. And so, so when I emphasize today that God wants to heal, I'm going to emphasize not only does He want to heal sickness, He wants to heal infirmities. Indeed, He does. And when that happens, we must, you know this as well as I do. This is so elementary. But immediately, our voices, our hearts, our gaze must be turned upward with thanksgiving to the God who has touched us and the God who has healed. The discontent of the weary. I haven't spoken very much about their discontent, but you understand, because you understand human nature, how discontented these folks really were as they had gone three days' journey into the wilderness, they had no water to drink, and they were, they were very, very desperate in their plight. So let's speak about the disillusions, the disillusions of the discouraged. I am in gratitude to a man by the name of Paris Reeded, and perhaps many of you know who I have spoken of, who I'm speaking about this morning. But I heard him use this, this description of the path to defeat. The path to defeat. Now we're emphasizing this morning and today and this week, we're going to be emphasizing the path to victory. But it ought to behoove us to just spend a little bit of time thinking also about the path of defeat. Because all of us, I suppose, will find ourselves on occasion setting our gaze on that path instead of the path of victory that Jehovah Rapha wants us to be on. And so here's the path of defeat. It begins with disappointment. And disappointment turns to discouragement. And discouragement turns to disillusionment. Disillusionment turns to depression. And depression becomes defeat. I'll say that again. Disappointment becomes discouragement. 
Discouragement becomes disillusionment. Disillusionment turns to depression, and depression results in defeat. Now here we see something happening with these people. They had come to Merah. And the Bible says that those waters were bitter. We should understand this truth. That not only were the waters bitter, but the people, as they thought about God, they became bitter as well. And so we have two problems. We have bitter water, and we have bitter people. I don't think that's reading too much into the account. The Bible says they murmured. These were murmuring people. Many, many times. The Bible says at least once that on ten times they had murmured before God. And God became wroth with His people because they had engaged in murmuring so many times. So the water was bitter and the people bitter. The Greek word is pakria, pikria. And that word means to be poisoned. It means to be acrid. If you could just try to think about the most distasteful water you've ever experienced and multiply that by a factor of ten or a hundred perhaps, then perhaps you could begin to get an idea of what those waters at Merah were like. They were bitter. Now, I'm not so concerned this morning about encountering bitter water. We have to deal with that at our house a little bit. We have a condition in our water that's called sulfur. And it, and it makes that water taste very, very bad. We do something about it. And we get that taste and that smell out of there. And we drink good water. But water is bitter from time to time. But especially I'm concerned, not so much about the water, but I'm concerned about my heart. And I'm concerned about your hearts. All of us. And I'm wanting us to understand that, that we need to be very, very diligent about guarding our hearts that we not allow bitterness of soul to creep in or bitterness of heart. God is concerned about that. I'm concerned about that. And I believe you're concerned about that. Let's be careful that we not allow ourselves to become bitter. Now, now here's the question. How do I know if I'm bitter or becoming bitter? How do I know if I'm bitter if I'm bitter or not. I want to give you three Bible passages that might just help you understand and help me understand whether or not I am dealing with bitterness. First question. Is my experience of life an experience of kindness, tenderness of heart, an experience of forgiveness to others? Kindness, tenderness of heart, forgiveness to other people? Paul says it this way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all guile, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, that passage tells us that if we have tenderness of heart, if we're forgiving of other people, if we have kindness in our countenance and in our direction towards others, 
then we're not dealing with bitterness. Second question. As you think about this question, whether or not I'm dealing with bitterness of heart, second question is this. Are you in any degree, at any level, are you bound by any level of lawlessness? Are you bound by the desire to just experience some level of lawlessness? In the 8th chapter of the Acts, and I should have looked this account up to become more familiar with the context. But in the 8th chapter of Acts, there was a man called Simon the Sorcerer. And, and he saw something that the disciples had that he wanted to have. And he was rebuked by a man of God. And the man of God said to him, I perceive that thou art in the bond of iniquity and in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity, that means that that individual was bound with lawlessness. And so if I have, if I'm experiencing any kind of bondage, if I'm experiencing any level of being captive to the desire to just approach lawlessness and embrace it in some manner or other, then I must understand this morning that really I'm dealing with bitterness. Third question. Are you having a defiling or a sanctifying influence on other individuals? A defiling or a sanctifying influence on other individuals? I don't believe in a lot of middle ground. I tend to see things in blacks and whites, and I know there's some, there's some virtue in that and there's some hazards with that, but that's just the way I approach things. The Bible says in the 14th chapter of Romans that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so if, if there's something in my life that I want to say, well, that's not sin, then I ought to be asking myself, well, is that faith? And so that sets before me in stark contrast the black and white that I'm speaking about this morning. But let's, ask, let's answer this question. Are you defiling or are you sanctifying other individuals? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, and if I can't quote the entire passage, I'll just paraphrase it, but it says like this, looking diligently lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And so we are to be looking diligently. I'm looking that way inwardly. And you're looking that way inwardly this morning. Lest any of us would fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble me, us and thereby many be defiled. Those are some of the ways that you can determine this morning whether or not you're dealing with bitterness in your own heart. The proverb, chapter 14, verse 10, says like this, The, Lord, the, the heart knoweth his own bitterness. 
And so I'm going to say today that as God speaks to you, as you commune with God, as you meet Him on holy ground, I believe that He will reveal to you. He will let you know whether or not you're dealing with bitterness of heart. The heart knows his own bitterness, the proverb says. And in that context, it's speaking about finding favor with God and flourishing in the presence of God. And so these people found themselves in a condition of being disillusioned as a result of their discouragement. And they were murmuring and they were complaining. God provided a remedy. Praise His name for that this morning. He provided a remedy. God's in the business of providing remedies. We believe that. We're embracing that. And I want to encourage us to embrace, embrace that in greater reality today and tomorrow and throughout the week and throughout your life. Let this be a life-changing realization for us. God provides remedies. No matter what our plight, no matter what our situation or station in life. Now, the Bible says it this way in the 25th verse. There He proved them. There He proved them. The people were murmuring and complaining. And they were attempting to put God on trial. But don't we understand today that it was not God who was on trial. It was the people who were on trial. And when we're meeting difficulties in life, it's not God who's on trial. It's us that's on trial. We're the ones that are being proved. Jehovah Rapha was proving those individuals. Indeed, he was proving those individuals. And just let's just read this, this 25th verse. Moses cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And there's not a period there, but we'll stop right there. Especially I'm thinking about the first part of that verse. The part of the verse that precedes the colon. Moses cried in the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. We must understand that, that when God provided this tree, when God showed this tree to Moses, it was a tree that was nearby. Moses didn't have to go trekking through the desert a half a day's journey to find this tree. He didn't go, have to go hunting for it and to search diligently for it. But the Bible says simply that God showed Moses the tree. The tree was right there all the time. And so Moses, having been shown this tree by God, took the tree... And he put that tree into the water. The Bible says he cast it there. I don't know how big a tree it was. And I don't know what kind of superhuman feat of strength this might have, con uh, might have required on Moses' part. But Moses took this tree and the Bible says 
He cast that tree into the waters. That tree was nearby. It was right next to him. Right there all the time. But until Moses took that tree and threw it into the waters, the waters were bitter and not sweet. And I believe this morning that so many times the remedy is right there. It's right at our fingertips, if you will. And we fail to apply that remedy to the difficulties in which we encounter because we fail to call upon God to exercise Himself as He desires and delights to do all so many times. We fail to do that. The remedy is right at hand. And we fail to avail ourselves of the remedy that He provides. The waters were distilled. The distilling of the water. The, the bitterness was removed from the water. The waters were made sweet. Jehovah Rapha wants life to be sweet for us. That reality ought to sink down deep into the heart, the mind of every one of you. God wants life to be sweet. Now understand what I mean when I say He wants life to be sweet for you. He wants the experiences of life to be sweet. This needs to be understood, this statement, in the larger context of Scripture. But He wants the experience of life to be an experience of sweetness. He wants it to be a savory experience. This life of discipleship of the redeemed. Those who have been called out of Egypt. Those who have encountered trials along the way. Those who have seen the mighty deliverance of God as you pass through the waters of the Red Sea, so to speak. God wants life to be sweet. Indeed, He does. The waters were bitter, but they were made sweet when the tree was cast into the waters. We'll come back to that thought of the tree being cast into the waters the distilling of the water. Along with the distilling of the waters, we ought to also understand that there are now some demands of the healer. Some demands of the healer. Let's read verse 26. We left off in verse 25 with a comma, and preceding that comma, there was a statement made about a statute and an ordinance. And here we have it. Here we have the statute and the ordinance. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in His sight, and wilt give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. Now here you can pick them out. You can read. And the Bible says that one thing required is to diligently hearken. Another thing required is to do what is right. A third thing required is to give ear to His commandments. Think about that post. And think about those ears there. 
And think about those laws. And think about the message we heard last evening by Brother Merle. I want you to think about that. I'm not saying that that's the primary emphasis of this third requirement in the 26th verse of Exodus chapter 15, but I'm wanting to say there's an application here and we ought to embrace the application as it's already been given to us. Give ear to His commandments. And the fourth one is to keep all His statutes. That's speaking about sustenance. Sustaining victory in Christ Jesus. And so, you just summarize that, and it just simply means to be obedient. And the Bible emphasizes this truth over and over and over again to be obedient. God wants us to be obedient. He wants a sanctified people. We cannot be sanctified, my dear young people today, unless we're walking in obedience to the holy, majestic God that we serve. Diligence. That word's mentioned here in this verse. Diligence. Perhaps I'll just speak a little bit about diligence. I know that my God wants a diligent service. He's not interested in a haphazard, lukewarm, casual approach to discipleship. He wants us to be diligent. And I believe that you believe that. He wants us to be diligent. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures that emphasize the fact that we are called to give diligent service. That's what servants do. They give service to the Master. Diligent service. The first of those, and both of these are found in the first chapter of Second Peter. Incidentally, I was supposing that there were a lot of people last evening, a lot of young people, that as you gave testimony to your favorite Bible character that you would have chosen Peter because that's who I would choose. But you see, we're all different. God's made us all different. And that's, and that's right and fitting. Not everybody's the eye or the hand or the foot or the nose. God's made us different. And, and I like Peter. I'll just say I like Peter. I've always been inspired by Peter. And I like the words of Peter. And, and so Peter says in First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 8, 5, verse 5, through 8, he says like this. He says, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue patience, and to patience experience, and experience hope. For hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost that is given to us. Well, I've messed up that quotation. Let's go to Second Peter chapter 1. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you like to be fruitful in your service to God? And I know that a resounding yes is coming forth from your hearts. I want to be fruitful for Him. I want you to be fruitful for Him. 
You want to be fruitful for Him. And more than that, God wants you to be fruitful. We want fruitfulness in our lives. The Bible says that diligence is the place it begins. Look at it again. Verse 5. Beside this, giving all diligence, add and add and add and add and add and add and add. And if this happens, you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I probably should have stayed there before I close my Bible because I may need that for the next passage. Second Peter, this time also in chapter 1, but notice this time in verse 10. This speaks about not fruitfulness so much as faithfulness. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be minister unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give diligence. And if you do that, you're not going to fall. First of all, you'll be faithful. You'll not fall. And secondly, an entrance is going to be ministered to us. And notice the way the Bible says it. This entry, this port of entry, this doorway is going to be ministered to us abundantly. Because it's the abundant, the superabundant God who's ministering this to us. And so, diligence results in fruitfulness and it results in faithfulness. One more illustration from my own personal testimony. One time many years ago, I got a phone call. A sister in a neighboring district had died. I got a phone call and and I was asked if I would preach the funeral. And I had uh, just about, I thought, recovered from a cold, a, a, bad, uh, a bad cold. And, and so I said, with a great deal of huskiness in my voice, I said, yes, I'll do that. I'll, I'll try to do the best I can. And, and I had a couple of days. And, and during this two-day interval, uh, the lingering effects of this cold turned into a cough. And I, and I began to cough and cough and cough. And, and it was a very severe cough. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I knew that I'd said I would, I would preach the funeral. And, and I knew that one of the most irritating things that can happen is for somebody to try to talk to a group of people and especially share the Word of God. And, and, and this irritant cough, this irritating cough, just comes forth from the throat and the, and the chest of the individual who's trying to exercise in ministry. So we were praying about this, Janie and I, and we went to the funeral home that morning, and I coughed all the way up there. And I thought, okay, God, you know, how are you going to work this out? And so I sat there during the service at the funeral home, and we sat in the back because I was concerned about this cough. And I coughed and coughed and coughed. We left the funeral home, and in the procession, we went back towards the meeting house, and and all the way back there, just the two of us. And, and I was coughing and coughing and coughing. And, and I would cough and my, my chest would heave. And, and my throat was sore. We walked into the meeting house that morning. And not one cough escaped my throat. And I knew 
Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha. We left the meeting house, went to the cemetery. On the way to the cemetery, the cough was back. And it was severe. And we came back and ate lunch there in the basement. And I coughed all through that meal. And I coughed for some time after that. But I can tell you this morning that there is a time and place for God to just reach down and touch frail humanity in a very dynamic way and to give His healing power to an individual that He desires to use to accomplish His purpose. Well, let's conclude this message. As we conclude, I want to say a couple of things about when to expect God's healing. When should we expect God's healing? First of all, and these are so elementary, I perhaps don't need to mention them, but, but first of all, when it furthers the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, then we should expect or anticipate at least with a strong degree of expectation that God is going to heal when it furthers the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, when it will give glory to God in the fullest measure. When it gives glory to Him. We must recognize, and here's the disclaimer to this message. We must recognize that it is not always God's will for physical healing to occur in our lives. Take with me to the life of Job. Think about Job's boils and Job's misery and how God allowed that condition to just linger and linger and linger there. Think with me also to the life of the Apostle Paul. And we draw great inspiration from this mighty man of God. But think with me how he says in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, about his condition of having a thorn in the flesh, and three times he besought the Lord for that messenger of Satan to depart from him, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. God was best glorified. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus was best furthered and promoted by the fact that Paul's thorn in the flesh continued to linger throughout, I suppose, the remainder of his life. Paul writes in the previous chapter about the difficulties he encountered, the perils of ministry, the perils in the waters and perils in the city and perils in the country and perils among false brethren and perils in, and, and it just goes on and on and on. In that 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians about perils and watchings and weariness and, and all of these kinds of things. They were trials to him. And God didn't reach down in miraculous manner and pluck him out of those trials. Instead, he gave him strength to sustain, strength to bear those trials. Think about the faithful men and women in Hebrews chapter 11. Think about how those are given as testimonies for us and how we're also called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus. Think about faithful men and women throughout history who have died as a result of illness or sickness or malady 
or some lingering condition that followed that malady. Think about individuals like that. The Bible says there in Hebrews chapter 11 that some were destitute, some were afflicted, some were tormented with the encounters of life. The Bible says that some were stoned, some were sawn asunder, some were slain with the sword. Those are realities. There's a time. I want to emphasize this for just a moment. But I want to make emphatic reference to this, that there is a time, like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, to simply glory in infirmity. There is a time and place for that. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, after he had described how he besought the Lord thrice, that that thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, would be removed from him, he heard the voice of God speaking to him in clear, unmistakable tones, and God told him that this condition was something that he was going to have to deal with. And Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in trials, if you will, in difficulties, in persecutions, he goes on, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Jesus told him, just previous to that, my strength is made perfect in weakness. When I am beset by disease or malady or the lingering effects of one of those, I must recognize that oftentimes God's glory is going to be best manifest in my life with that condition. Oftentimes it'll be that way. But I don't want that to take away from us the fact that Jehovah Rapha is the God who heals. Now let's go back to the waters of Merah. And let's think about the remedy that God provided. Moses found that tree nearby. And he cast that into the waters of of Merah, the waters who were bitter, the waters that were bitter. We should understand this in this context today. That tree is the cross. And when the cross is applied to the bitter water of life, the experience becomes sweet because we know that our Lord Jesus is there with us. We understand that. We believe it. And we embrace the blessing of the remedy that He provides in the distilling of the waters. The Bible speaks about not only the water of life, but the tree of life. We've already had reference made to that this morning in the devotions before breakfast. The 22nd chapter of the Revelation speaks about the fact that that the revelator was shown the pure river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. And that passage speaks to us about how that on either side of the river there was the tree of life. And the Bible says in that passage 
that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let me take you to another scripture. Very, very familiar passage. The truth is that it was by the travail of Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary as He hung suspended there between heaven and earth. Earth didn't want Him. Heaven couldn't receive Him yet. And so He does there, suspended between heaven and earth. It was there as He experienced travail, as He had already encountered the beatings on the way to the cross, as He had previous to that experienced a desperate travail in the Garden of Gethsemane when His sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. <clears throat> the lashings that they had applied to His back, the bits of bone and metal from the cat of nine tails being, being flung at Him, and the, and the shredding of His flesh. Now just think about that. And the Bible says in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Can we see this morning that there is a place that we must come to in that Jehovah Rapha is not only interested in healing our physical bodies, but more especially than that, He is interested in healing our soul's distresses. Indeed, He is. Notice that verse that we sang. 158, the first verse. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our souls' diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He knows your struggles. He knows your struggles. He knows my struggles. He knows all about our struggles. But He will guide what day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. He is. He is the healer. The Lord who heals. He is the fullness of the reality of Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Rapha. Jesus Christ, the remedy for our sins. The one that God provided. The one who nailed to the cross. The one who died for us. The one who took my sins upon Him. And the one who came victoriously out of the grave and He ascended back to the Father, and right now at this moment, He's interceding for you and for me, every one of us. This is Jehovah Rapha. This is the One who heals. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who has provided as the remedy for the sins, the maladies, the lingering effects of those in all climes, all around the globe, in every condition. So whatever condition you are in this morning, remember 
I am the God which healeth thee. I am Jehovah Rapha. Amen.